0: Judges chapter 6, something to write on and something to write with, a Bible open, and you're going to be in good shape. You know, it's possible that you came in here today with the wrong impression of almost everyone. Uh, You might feel like you're the only mess and everyone else around you in here has it all together. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, as long as you don't tell anybody. uh, We're all a little messy. All of us messed up. Some of us a lot messed up and we're not in here because we've got it all together, but because we're trusting Jesus to put us together, Uh, we're here for help from a Jesus who's a healer and a restorer and a savior. Uh, And all too often we have this impression that if I'm going to be a follower of his, if I'm going to be a disciple, I've got to be 100%, no mess ups, all in, all the time. The reality is discipleship operates kind of on a dimmer switch sometimes it's not just black and white on and off sometimes our affections for the Lord are soft other times they are blazing and that's what Bible characters are like as well not all of our Bible heroes are made out of hero stuff that's the case with Gideon here in Judges chapter 6 Gideon struggles with faith and fear And like him, we have real doubts and real hesitations and flimsy faithfulness. But the good news is this. God works with disciples in progress. So our doubts and our fears should not prevent us from obeying the Lord's call. God doesn't want you to be the biggest and the baddest, some sort of SEAL Team 6 type of disciple. He simply wants you to trust him. And when weak disciples trust a mighty God, amazing things happen. That's what we're going to see in the story of Gideon today. Gideon is shaped by God throughout this story. His weakness is at the forefront with every section of chapter 6. And Gideon's story of being shaped by God is not some sort of steady upward trajectory. Gideon, even in chapter 6, has peaks and valleys, and the valleys at the end might be worse than the valleys at the beginning. Gideon's walk with the Lord is highs and lows, but there's trust, and that's what I want us to pull out of this passage today. My goal today from Judges chapter 6 is to convince you to trust your weak self to your strong God and let him shape you for the mighty work that he has for you. We're looking for weak disciples to say yes to the Lord today and let him shape us as he will. So I want to show you in Judges chapter 6 four ways God shapes his weak disciples. So if you've got your Bible open, I want you to follow along with me as I read. It's kind of long. Judges chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian... He sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, "'The Lord is with you, mighty warrior.'" But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if I now have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah a flower he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord Touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Well, the men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerob Baal, saying, Let Baal contend with him, because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites... Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, "'If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look.'" I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, this time Make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, all the ground was covered with dew. All right, let me show you from Judges chapter six four ways God shapes his weak disciples. If you're taking notes, number one, the first way God shapes us is this God changes our hearts. God changes our hearts. God always does a transforming work in His weak servants. And when I say God changes our hearts, I'm referencing our first love. God does a major priority shift in us. As he molds us and makes us into the people he wants us to be. In verses 1 through 10, as we're introduced to this whole scene, uh, we see God shaping the priorities and the hearts of his people Israel. So our story opens with a familiar refrain, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's this sick cycle over and over again. We've seen it every week since we've been in the Judges. God delivers his people from an enemy, sets them up in a good place. As long as the judge, this military leader, is alive, Israel walks with the Lord. But when the judge dies, the people chase after their own gods, gods of their own making. And when we read this familiar phrase that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, we need to feel the impact of it. We've got to know that this is not just Israel missing church, so to speak. This is Israel going after false gods, pursuing false idols. Child sacrifice is a major part of this act of worship. As a result of their idolatry, God lifts his protection from them. These bad guys called the Midianites oppress Israel for seven years. Now, the Midianites are a brutal regime. Under other oppressors, Israel still able to live in their own home, to do their work, farm their fields, take in their harvests, but that's not the case under Midian. Every year at harvest time, there was this invasion. Midianites came in with Amalekites and other enemy peoples around Israel, and like locusts, they come in and they ravage the harvest. This is a big deal. They, they wiped out all food sources and Israelites had to leave their homes and go live in caves for a period of time. So can you imagine sitting in a cave with your, your spouse and your kids, maybe your parents are there with you also, and you're watching as everything you've worked for that year is just completely destroyed. Destroyed. Your home is ransacked. Your fields are torn up. Your herds, your livestock are slaughtered. There's a scarcity of plant food and a scarcity of animal food. It's a brutal oppression, a crushing oppression for Israel. And so they cry out to the Lord. I want you to imagine you're in the cave watching your place get wiped out. What kind of prayer would you voice to Yahweh? What would that prayer sound like? It might sound like this. We don't have a recording of it, but it might sound something like this. You might say, Oh, Lord, deliver us from the hands of the the Midianites. Oh, Lord, give us back our homes and our fields. Lord, save us. That might be the type of prayer you pray. How does God answer that prayer in the story? In verse 8, he sends them a prophet. Not the judge first, they get a prophet. They ask for deliverance, and first they get a sermon. What does the sermon say? Verse 8, here's the word of the Lord to Israel. I brought you up out of Egypt. God records all of his mighty acts for his people. I brought you up out of Egypt. Verse 9, I rescued you from the Egyptians. I delivered you from your oppressors. I gave you their land. Verse 10, I said to you, I'm the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites, but you have not listened to me. So they want deliverance, and they get a sermon. Why? Well, the reason they are starving in caves is not because Midian's army is so great, but because Israel's idolatry is so great. So if God removes the Midianites but leaves the idolatry, his people are still in bondage. There's got to be a change of heart here. There's got to be a repentance that comes in all of this. It's a vital lesson for all of us. So often we find ourselves in hard spots and we come to God as if he is merely our heavenly AAA, A, sort of our divine fix-it Felix. We run to him when we're in a jam, but we don't walk with him in faith otherwise. And that's Israel's problem here. That's our problem here. That's how it is when we ask God to bail us out without us also bowing to Him. So it's just like the human heart to want rescue without repentance, to want help without holiness, to want comfort without Christ. Is it wrong to pray for deliverance? Is it wrong to pray for rescue? Absolutely not. It's not wrong to pray for those things. We pray with finite understanding, a limited uh, ability to process what's going on around us. It's not wrong to pray for those things. But if God is only your problem fixer and not your great treasure, then friend, I'm telling you, He is not your God. God is not going to scatter the Midianites and let the idols remain. He's not going to remove the hardship and let your heart chase after idols or your own flesh. He's going to deliver his people entirely. So, God cares for weak servants like us by renewing our spiritual passion. When we find ourselves oppressed under the weight of sin, having run from God, broken by the struggles of this world, we have a God that comes to us and knows what we need first. What we need first is a new heart, reignited passions, a love for the Lord. That's what he wants for us. He gives us what is best. He'll deal with the deliverance, and he's going to do all of that while he gives us new hearts as well. So God changes our hearts. He gives weak servants a new heart. But there's another way God shapes his weak disciples. First, he's changing our hearts. Second, God is gracious. You could have written that. You know that. This is not newsflash. No one's running a victory lap, but God's grace is an incredible thing. When it comes to shaping weak servants like me and you. And so, the sermon ends. It seems like the prophet's sermon ends a little prematurely. He records or he rehearses what God has done for his people. And then he says, here's your guilt. I told you, I'm the Lord your God. You're my people. Don't worship the gods of the Amorites around you. But you've not done that. You've chased after their gods. So, the sermon, so to speak identifies their guilt and that's the end of it now if i'm writing this thing i'm going to add a little conclusion there put a therefore at the end of it therefore enjoy your cave have fun in the hills say goodbye to your house how many times have we been down this road israel how many times have you heard the stories of your forefathers who left me and chased these worthless make believe idols and the pain they suffered? Have fun. See you later. I'm out of here. It's probably a good thing I'm not God and He is because what God does for Israel is instead of speaking this condemnation, He moves in grace. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite. The angel of the Lord came. Israel, you are guilty. And the Lord still came to them. Now, this is where we finally meet Gideon in the story. We're told he's threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. Normally, you would thresh wheat in this large open space called a threshing floor, A threshing floor shows up uh, towards the end of chapter 6. But that's where you're supposed to take care of wheat. You you take care of grapes in the winepress and wheat at the threshing floor. And so the fact that Gideon is threshing the wheat, processing the wheat in a winepress to hide it, just goes to show us how messed up things were in Gideon's world. It was a sad time. And so it's to this fearful farmer that the angel of the Lord shows up in verse 12 and says... The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Isn't that an interesting way to greet this scaredy cat, this weak Gideon? But maybe God sees us for who we are becoming long before we do. Gideon replies in verse 13, right? He says, pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? Gideon does not know who he's speaking to, has no clue. And although Gideon may be weak in his family, he is strong with his opinion. I think the technical term is 10 pounds of sass in a 5 pounds bag, right? He's, he's coming with the heat, the objections. He's very upset at the situation he's in. And so two times in this little exchange, Gideon protests to the mysterious stranger. And twice, the Lord responds, how? With Grace. In verse 13, Gideon objects and says, if the Lord is really with us, why has this happened? In verse 14, the Lord says, go in the strength you have and save Israel. Am I not sending you? Verse 15 is the second objection from Gideon. How can I save Israel? I'm the weakest one of all. My family is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my family. Grace spoken in verse 16, I will be with you. Now, Gideon gradually becomes aware that he's in the presence of Yahweh, but he doesn't believe it outright. He's not going to just give himself over to this suspicion that he has. And so he asks for a sign. I mean, this guy is gutsy. He's just been sitting there blasting God, blaming Yahweh. And now when he gets a hint this might be him, he doesn't apologize. He says, I'm gonna, I need a sign from you. I need a favor from you. What does the Lord do? He agrees. I'll wait here until you come back. Now, the story moves quickly, but Gideon's gone for quite some time. It would take hours to slaughter and process the goat, to make the bread, to get everything ready, to bring it back uh, to this messenger. And when he does bring everything back, this offering back, the, the angel of the Lord takes control of the scene, put the goat on that rock and the bread on that rock now take the broth and pour it out over all of that and now watch this boom fire comes from the rock consumes the offering and the angel of the lord disappears and gideon knows now and when he realizes he's been speaking with the lord the whole time he flips out and rightly so when the heavenly messenger comes everyone is afraid of death everyone is And yet God speaks grace to Gideon in verse 23, peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. Gideon is different from other judges we have studied so far. Up to this point, these military leaders, these judges, they are some of God's faithful remnant in the midst of unbelieving Israel. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, they're examples of faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness. But not Gideon. Gideon is an idolater. He's all in in the worship of Baal and Asherah and a little bit of Yahweh recognition as well. He's not the lone faithful one in the midst of all of these unfaithful people. He's not contending for the covenant. He's not holding secret prayer meetings. He's not trying to make Israel great again. He's content in his rebellion against Yahweh. And still, every word of the Lord to Gideon is a word of grace. Verse 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 14, go in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? Verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites. Verse 18, I will wait until you return. Verse 23, peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. This is why grace is so amazing. God has the holy right to turn whiny Gideon into a pile of carbon dust. And instead, he waits patiently on his hurting child. You and I are not always at our best, right? Sometimes our hearts chase after the wrong things. Sometimes our hurts and our wounds, our anger, warp our theology, our view of God. Sometimes we relate to God through bitterness rather than through trust or praise. We are not always at our best. Sometimes we are at a rebellious worst and content to be in that rebellion. But time and again, God intervenes in our lives with grace. Over and over again, God pursues you in grace. Gideon's not the one who comes seeking God. God's the one that comes seeking Gideon. That's the way it is with you. That's the way it's been with me as well. He gives grace to sinners. And and so our response ought to be like Gideon's response. What does Gideon do when he realizes he's had an audience with the Lord? What does he do? He builds an altar. Verse 24, he builds an altar and he worships. That's what the grace of God does with weak servants. He turns the weak into worshipers, he turns sinners into singers. And so maybe part of the reason you would self-diagnose as a mess today is because you've been running from God for some time. Now, not many other people around you would know that. You play the role well when you come walking in, dressed well, smiling well, family seems well, but maybe on the inside, you know you're hurting because you've been running from God. God. And maybe you've got your justifications, maybe you've got your reasons, you've got it all settled in your mind. But maybe also this moment right now is a moment of grace from God when he says to you, I I know you're weak and I know you're hurt, I know you're bitter, I know you're angry and I love you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to wait on you. God's gracious to his hurting servants, that grace shapes us so that we can be and do the things God wants us to be and do. So God changes us how? He changes weak servants by giving us new hearts. He changes us by being gracious to us in the midst of all of our hurt and sin and woundedness. Third way God shapes His weak servants, God calls us to do hard things. God calls weak servants to do hard things. Verses 25 through 32 spell this out for us. So our story is moving quickly at this point. Gideon has had this exchange with the angel of the Lord. And then look at verses 25 and 26 with me. In verse 25, we're told, That same night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So this all happens in roughly a 24-hour period. The Lord shows himself to Gideon and then calls Gideon to this hard thing. It's difficult to overstate the weight of this moment for Gideon. Look, Gideon's dad is not your run-of-the-mill pagan. He has his own high place, his own altar to Baal, his own Asherah pole. When he wanted to worship make-believe gods, he just walked out the front door. There it was. He's not some casual pagan. He's all in on this stuff. And Gideon is told by the Lord to tear down his dad's idol. Now, my guess is this. The hard thing is not so much tearing down the idols as much as it is defying his father. He risks losing his place in the family. Gideon even risks losing his own life at the hands of his own father for bringing shame on the family in the midst of their culture. And so out of that fear, Gideon chooses to do what the Lord tells him to do. He does it at night. Sometimes people would knock Gideon Oh, if he was really brave, he'd do it during the daytime. Let's not knock the guy for his obedience. He does what the Lord tells him to do. And doing it during the daytime, he likely would not have had a chance to finish the job with all the meddling mob around him. So he gets his bros together. They go at nighttime. They tear all this down. They do exactly what the Lord tells him to do. The next morning, the sun rises and so does the mob. They come seeking justice. Someone rats out Gideon. And so the mob comes to Gideon's dad's front door. They come to Joash's house. And they tell Joash, Gideon must die for what he's done to Baal. Now, here is a pressure moment for Joash. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond to this mob? Now, some old men, not all old men, but some are known for being stubborn. Some young men, too. They're concerned about honor, concerned about how we look in the eyes of the people around us. So how will Joash respond? Look at verse 31. Are you, he says to the mob, are you going to plead Baal's cause? You're going to try to save Baal? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. This is your make-believe God? You, you got a problem here? If this is really God, he'll take care of it. He'll deal with it. I'm not going to worry about it. How amazing is Joash's response in this moment? Gideon's called to do a hard thing. Joash, in this moment, he has to do a hard thing. God calls his weak disciples to do hard things. Quite frankly, he puts demands on recipients of grace. Grace. See, the gospel is not merely salvation, it's also sanctification, it's holiness. God acts towards us in grace to rescue us, to lift us, to help us, and then he guides us and directs us in the way he wants us to live. Sometimes that's a hard call. Here's our problem. We want to be comfortable. We'd rather stay in relative ease rather than obey the hard call, do the hard thing. Uh, once upon a time, Jesus walked into a roadside diner, and he took a seat at a table back in the corner, and then a, a woman came in, and she had a cast on her leg, and she sat at a table, and she asked the waiter, she said, is that, is that Jesus back there in the corner? And the waiter goes, yeah, it is. She goes, wow, okay, hey, um, send him an entree and put it on my bill. Okay, the waiter did it. A little bit later, another woman came in. She had her arm in a cast. She asked the waiter, is that Jesus in the corner? Yeah, it is. Oh, he's got some food but no drink. Hey, send him a drink and put it on my bill. The waiter did it. Then a, a man came in with his neck in, in a neck brace. and He sits down and he says, is that the Son of God in the corner? And the waiter goes, yeah, it is. Well, send him some apple pie. Put it on my bill. And so the waiter did A little bit later, Jesus finishes the meal. He stands up and he walks to the first woman, the woman with the cast on her leg, and he says, thank you, my child, for your kindness to me. And he touches her leg, and the leg is healed, removes the cast, and she gets up and dances out of the restaurant. He goes to the second woman, the woman with her arm in the cast, and he says, thank you, my child, for your kindness to me, touches her arm, heals her arm, removes the cast. She goes clapping and praising God out of the restaurant. He walks up to the man with the neck brace on, and Jesus says, "Thank you, my child, for your kindness." And the man says, "You're welcome, but don't touch me. I'm drawn disability." <laughs> You'll be telling it tomorrow. Don't judge me. <laughs> How often do we reject the blessing of God's call to obedience in place of our comfortable brokenness? And when I say God calls us to do hard things, here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really, really hard things. Like being a husband who loves his wife sacrificially, like being a wife who submits to her husband as to the Lord. Like being a single person who cherishes celibacy and purity. I mean hard things like forgiving the person who's wronged you. Praying for your enemies. Someone asks you to go a mile and instead you go two miles with them. I mean really hard things like giving Jesus lordship over your finances It's hard to be a tither when there's so many things to buy and so many Joneses to keep up with. What's more, we've got to recognize the gospel is not going to go to every people group on this planet without Christians who say yes to a hard call. Without men and women who will use their retirements for the glory of God. Without moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas who will pray for God to put a call on the lives of their children We need Christians who are learning to speak Arabic so that the gospel will flourish in hellish places like Mosul and Raqqa again one day. We need Christians who will say yes to the hard call of God on their lives. Oh, that God would see fit to call from our family of faith, men and women, boys and girls, to do hard things, glorious things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the right response to His grace to do the hard thing He calls us to. And when we do the things God calls us to, we are never disappointed. No one has ever had this testimony. I followed the Lord and I was let down. His way is always the right way. His call is always the right call. So God changes our hearts. He gives us grace. He gives us the hard call. In a final way, God shapes His weak servants. God reassures us. In verses 33 through 40, we see God reassuring Gideon in an incredible way. Now, I want you to take note of a passage in time between verses 32 and 33. The end of verse 32, that's the end of Joash's speech to the angry mob. And verse 33 begins and says, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Now, everything before that happened in roughly a 24-hour period. But remember, this is an annual invasion. It's a harvest time invasion. So there's a passage of time between the whole scene with Joash at his house and these invading marauders coming into Israel once again. But this time, when they come into Israel, there's something different. You see, Israel has a leader, and his name is Gideon. So what does Gideon do? We're told the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. Gideon blows a horn and rallies people to him. But before Gideon makes a move against all of these enemy peoples, he asks God once more for a sign. So he says, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put out a fleece. And if you are really going to keep your promise to me, would you in the morning have the ground around it be dry and the fleece itself be wet and that's what happens and guess what that's what would happen if you were to lay out a piece of fleece tonight fleece is like nature's sham wow it's a it's a sponge right it it loves liquid and so the dew's going to be in the fleece i think Gideon realizes that the next morning and so then gideon's aware he's pressing the boundaries of the lord's patience please don't be angry at me just one more time, but this time let the fleece be dry and the ground around it be wet with dew. That would be supernatural. and That's exactly what happens. Gideon wakes up the next morning with a dry fleece and the Lord's assurance. Isn't it fascinating? We're told the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He's clothed in the spirit of the Lord and yet... He still doubts. He still has fear. He still has this weak, fragile personality. He's not some monster robot, super ninja Christian guy. He's still weak Gideon who needs assurance. And God is patient enough with this fearful child to give him the reassurance that he needs. It's an incredible picture of God. As stunning as Gideon's actions are, more amazing to me, It's the patience and the kindness of God to reassure Gideon. So then, should you and I go home today, tonight, we take our fleece jackets out of our closets, go outside, lay them on the hood of the car, and say, Lord, if your word is true, let my car be covered in pollen, but my fleece to remain untouched. (laughs) No, (laughs) because God has already done better than that. He shows his love for you and his attentiveness to his word by giving you his son, Jesus, who died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead. And that empty tomb is a sign of greater assurance than any fleece or any other sign could ever give you. You can hop on a plane tomorrow, fly to Israel, and guess what? The tomb is empty. There's the sign for you that God keeps his word. He's true to his promises. He does what he says he will do for his weak servants. And it's just like God to lower himself to our level and to give us assurance in the midst of our fears. He is patient with our weakness. He shapes his servants by strengthening our fragile faith. So in the opening chapter of Gideon's story, chapter 6, we're encouraged by the God who shapes weak disciples. And here's what we've seen God do in Gideon's life. Here's the way God works in our lives as well. He shapes us in these ways. He's changing our hearts. He's giving us grace. He's calling us to do hard things. He is reassuring us when our faith is weak and fragile. So that's good news for weak disciples. But we've got to make a careful differentiation here. It's one thing to be a disciple with a weak faith. It's another thing to be a non-believer with a dead faith. If God's going to change us, God's going to use us, it starts with an act of surrender on our part. It starts with you and I acknowledging God is love and God is good and God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the way I'm made right with God is not through my Own moral construct not by having a set of scales at the end of my life where my good is is more than my bad it's not through religious deeds and activities by which i try to make god happy i'm saved from the penalty of my sin by trusting in the one who died for my sin and rose from the dead three days later That's salvation, real and true. God's true to that word every time, every time someone calls on the name of the Lord, trusts in Jesus Christ. They are saved every time. That promise never fails. And that might be the starting point for you this morning. You recognize your weakness. You recognize your struggles. I hope you recognize, if need be, that you need Jesus as your Savior, This is a great story for weak servants, weak disciples as well. And what we see in Judges chapter 6 is that this is the way God has always worked. He's always worked through weakness. Gideon's not the exception to the rule. Throughout the recorded Scriptures and throughout the history of the church, God has worked in human weakness. He worked in the weakness of his servant Gideon, and then he came to us in weakness. God the Son comes to us, not on a chariot, not with the acclaim of the universe, but He's born in relative obscurity to a virgin Jewish peasant girl. He's raised in poverty, in humility, in invisibility, and His life is lived on a downward trajectory all the way to the cross. And at the cross, He suffers a humiliating, horrible death in the place of sinners like me and sinners like you. And those who observed his death on that day would have called it a weak death, but they didn't know what was going to happen three days later. He, he walked out of that tomb. Not a ghost, not a vapor, not a myth. His body rose physically from the dead. He walked out of that tomb. He's alive evermore. And you know what? He's coming again one day. But that second coming is going to be different from this first coming. First he came in weakness. Next he will come in omnipotence. First he came like a lamb. Next he will come like a lion. First he came in poverty. Next he will come in the wealth of nations and all the glory of the universe. Because our God does mighty things through his weak servants. So if you're weak today, there's no need to add despair to that weakness. God is shaping you and reassuring you. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And you, my brother, you, my sister, you are his mighty warrior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us an example like Gideon. A flawed example, a broken example, one that doesn't get it right the first time or even the fourth time. I know that's my story. I I think that's probably the story of a lot of us in here. And thank you that in Gideon's example, we see some amazing things about you, your patience, your grace, your mercy, your love. And for this, we praise you. God, there might be some friends with us this morning who've been on a long journey to the cross. Maybe today's the day where they recognize finally your voice and your call. Lord, give them the courage, the boldness to step forward in faith this morning. For my brothers and sisters who come in here limping today. Lord, the strength is not our own. Our strength is you and only you. So let this be a moment in which our shaping begins again or our shaping continues. And Lord, Let us hear your voice, that to which you have called us. Let us be obedient to walk in the ways of the gospel. So, Father, thank you for your patience and your reassurance with us weak servants. We need it today. And so now we're going to rest in you. We're going to say yes to you, and we're going to worship your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.